Well, church family, if you could open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That's page, I think it's 555 in the Bible in your pew in front of you. As we continue in our series, The End of Everything. In 1923, a very important meeting was held in Chicago with all the world's, or the 10 most famous and successful financiers in the world, Uh, the people with the most money. And they got together to talk about how they had made their money and how they were going to uh, kind of invest into the world. Well, 25 years later, I want to read what came of those 25 men. Uh, The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, died a bankrupt. The president of the greatest utility company, Samuel Insull, died a fugitive from injustice and penniless in a foreign land. The president of the greatest gas company, Howard Hobson, became insane. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cotton, died abroad insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was released from Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so that he could die at his home. The greatest bear on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, died a suicide. The head of the greatest monopoly, Ivar Kruger, died a suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Settlements, Leon Frazier, died a suicide. Life is tragic when one has plenty, but it is not living for anything or for anyone. And I would just ask the Lord to keep us from this, to guard us from this. Uh, Last week, we discussed the fear of God and how the fear of God really provides the meaningfulness of life for us. When we properly worship God, we can then begin to live in the fear of God in everything that we do in life. And this week, the preacher drags us back out into the sun, which is where we've been kind of living, and he wants us to apply the fear of God, and the topic is wealth and money. Uh, He wants us to to teach us how to live properly and rightly because money is one of the great threats to proper worship and faithful living. And so we want to be mindful of this today. Christ talks about money a lot, in fact. The Bible talks about money a lot. And the preacher is kind of echoing some of what Christ has taught us in the New Testament. He's pouring on the warning of greed. Christ himself spent about 15% of the time speaking about money in some form or fashion. 11 out of the 39 parables are about the dangers of money in some way. I want us to remember Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6 as it frames our time today. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despite the other. You cannot love God and money. Money promises us many things. It promises to provide many things for us. 
If we were to take inventory of our hearts, we recognize we have these holes uh, that are there and we think that money is the means to get something that will help fill those hearts, those holes in our heart. But I want us to be reminded today that there is a great danger with money. And, and there's also a great stewardship with money and we're gonna, we're gonna get to that. But there is a great danger with money. In fact, it was 30 pieces of silver, uh, the equivalent of a few hundred dollars that someone thought was worth more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we want to be very particular and careful. Now, we might be sitting in the chair today and not trying to be the richest people in the world. Uh, We're not uh, after a whole lot, perhaps. Uh, But maybe we're tempted with just a little bit more. Maybe there's something in us that, would, that, that kind of buys into the life. We just had a little bit more uh, than we would be satisfied. Uh, and I would argue that we want, to, we want to make sure that we get just a little bit more of God today as we open his word and trust in him. Now this text that we're going to look at explains kind of two big themes. The warnings of wealth and also the enjoyment of life with God who gives us these things. God gives us life and he gives us things to enjoy and he gives us himself. And this passage is gonna kind of show us the warnings of wealth and then how wealth and things can properly be enjoyed in this life. Uh, The main point of the passage uh, that I've kind of come to is, is simply this. Consider these warnings of searching for satisfaction and wealth that we're gonna lay out rather than being satisfied in God and the gifts he determines for us. So we want to find our contentment in him. And you guys, thank you for bearing with me with my voice today. Lord, help me. Uh, The first point, there's only two points, but the first point uh, is is driven from verses eight through 17. And it's simply this, contentment and joy does not come from wealth. Contentment and joy does not come from wealth. And and the preacher here gives us seven warnings that we're going to kind of just work through one by one, sort of quickly, to be aware of. And and, and you uh, you might not connect with all of them, but I want you to connect at least with some of them because they're they're pointing to certain places in our heart. The first warning is found in verse eight. Wealth oppresses people. Look with me in verse eight. If you see a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there is yet a higher ones over them. Again, the preacher is discussing Injustice, which we've already covered in verses three, or chapters three and four of this great book. But he identifies that wealth is one of the ways that the poor are exploited. And you'll see here in verse eight that we should not be amazed that when this happens, those who are in high positions do oppress the poor. And this happens all over the place, and we're not to be surprised. So when we see officials oppressing the poor and violating righteousness and justice, that's to be expected. He's kind of preparing the heart for such a thing. The simplest way to explain this is 
the safeguards that society has, those places of justice and righteousness, uh, bureaucracy, right, the checks and balances of life, there's going to be injustice there, and it's driven because people want more money, and we need to be aware of that. And in fact, these systems enable officials and higher officials to profit, and when they profit, they are taking from others who are not getting, and that is the poor here. Uh, we know this today is what's called cronyism. You guys know those are my cronies. This is where we get cronyism. You see this both in government and you see this in business. Uh, people get jobs out of loyalty, out of nepotism, uh, out of favors, uh, out of uh, partiality rather than qualification. And the idea here is to care for the people in the system rather than the weak who are outside of the system. And so the system never really works for the people. And there's injustice in it. He continues in verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, verse 9 is actually a really difficult text to understand, and there's a ton of scholarly opinions for it, both positive and negative meanings for the king. But it makes the most sense, to me at least, to see the king is the greatest beneficiary of all the corruption because of the negative uh, connotation in verse 8. And the bottom line is this, st structural greed serves nobody. Those who are benefiting from it are not happy with it. And those who aren't getting theirs are not having their needs met. And this is the dangers of oppression uh, and, and, and power that money can bring about. Now, though we're not to be surprised, as it says in verse 8, my application for this little point is simply this. We should pray for those who are in high positions, those who are leading companies, those who are leading our governments. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, I urge that supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we should pray for those. We should not be surprised, but we should pray for those who are over us. Uh, the second warning is found in verse 10. Wealth cannot satisfy people. Look with me in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity, the preacher says. So the one who loves money will not be satisfied by what he loves, nor by the money it takes to get the things that you love. It never brings about the hope or the satisfaction that we think that it will. Now, he's not necessarily just addressing the rich here. He's addressing anybody. He's talking about a heart issue here. Anyone that loves money and what it promises we'll see that it's not going to bring satisfaction, as it says there in verse 10. And what this actually brings about is it points to a discontentedness that we can have in the things that God has given to us. And so we, we think we need more. And he's saying, beware, because wealth cannot satisfy you the way that you think wealth can satisfy you. And we, we've all been there, right? We, we've all lived in small apartments and we've had that thought where it's like, if I only had a house, 
right? And we get the house and we live in it a few years and then we think, but if I only had a house in that neighborhood uh, or, or if I only had a bigger salary so I could travel more and, and then you get a little bit bigger salary and you start traveling a little bit more and then you go to the places that you wanna go but then you say you wanna turn back, uh, you wanna return back to the place that you travel and you wanna stay at that place next time because it's better. As our desires uh, for money increase, so do our desires in our heart. And he's telling us to be aware. Be aware of this. Are you aware of what your heart longs for? Perhaps with your spouse, have y'all talked about the dangers of your own heart? Uh, the little idolatries that are tucked into uh, the inner parts of your being? Uh, we have to recognize that all of us have some of these within us. They all might look a little bit different, but they're there. Consider God's word from 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, look what he says, is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. This is a real dangerous thing uh, that, that, the, that the scriptures are teaching us about. So God, give us a clear understanding of these pitfalls. God, give us hope and understanding of what the right way to view money is and recognizing that it can be a great danger to us, a piece of fruit that's offered up to us just like in the garden that looks beautiful, but when you bite into it, it cannot satisfy. The third warning is this. Wealth attracts other people. Wealth attracts other people. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? That basically saying, when you have money, you see those around you who want what you have, and you end up feeding them also. So money can be a burden. Money can be something that it looks good, but actually has a great weight to it as you carry other people along with you. Tremper Longman, who's a commentator, says, the one who has the wealth, wealth seldom has the opportunity to enjoy its fruits. Now, it's unclear from the passage who he's specifically talking about, but we could apply this to friends, to families, we could apply this to institutions who are looking to raise money for their initiatives. We could include the IRS, all right? Bigger tax brackets when you get bigger checks. But he's just saying it attracts more people. I remember when I was in my mid-20s, one of my first jobs was raising money for an institution. I, I believed in the institution, the, inst uh, the, the mission of the institution still do to this day. But I was raising money, and I would show up on doorsteps and I and they knew, like, uh, I'm here to, because I want you to believe in the things that I believe in, and you have the money to do it. That, so money brings about the attraction of others. Even if we handle it right, even if we're faithful in, in, in raising money, it can still attract others. Uh, the fourth warning is this. Wealth causes sleeplessness. Look with me in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
Now, you'll notice that the first part of verse 12 is actually describing a content person. Uh, someone who has uh, worked hard, uh, and whether he eats little or much, he is sleeping well. And that's, I hope, that would be all of us in this room. That's the goal, at least, as we shepherd through these texts. But the warning here is for the wealthy, who are thinking always, even in their sleep, about what it is that they're going for. The, the, The satisfying cravings that they hope money brings about all the roadblocks in their way, all the people who are wanting something from from them or keeping something from them as well. And they're unable to sleep even with their full stomachs. They're not satisfied. And this is a danger. They're always wanting. And in their wanting, they're never resting. The wanting that drives them is keeping them from rest from the one who works hard. And you might be lying awake at night and you're not thinking about how you're gonna make a lot of cheese this week, right? I, I, I get that you're probably not just counting dollar signs as you jump over the fence, as they jump over the fence so that you fall asleep. Uh, but, but I think the question still is there that you can be strategizing, even in our mind, just a little bit more Or how do I get this job? Or how does this person think well of me so that I'm positioned in this way to get a little bit more of what I want? And this too is a warning. Now be warning, uh, the fifth warning is, is this, found in verses 13 and 14. Wealth doesn't bring about security. Wealth doesn't bring about security. And we see this in verses 13 and 14 in two different ways. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now, I want us to notice the warning first in verse 13. When the rich keep keep for themselves and how it ends in their hurt. Basically this, hoarding money hurts us. It's a dangerous thing. Thinking that you can get security by having more money and not doing anything with it is also a fool's errand. Perhaps uh, Ebenezer Scrooge comes to mind from the Christmas Carol, who had all of this money tucked away. He didn't spend any of it, but he was miserable, both in him, his own heart, and then he was miserable for everybody else around him. But now look what it says in verse 14. It talks about those same riches that were once kept back, and those riches were lost in a bad, in a bad venture. So at some point, this rich guy, or uh, the temptation is to then invest, uh, but those riches are lost in a bad Venture, that's this kind of the second way that we try to find security is to make more money from the money. But he says even that is a fool's errand. We can lose it through a bad investment, an economic collapse. <laughs> Does anybody remember 2008? Uh, you can lose it from a war that destroys all that you've worked for. Ultimately, money itself is not the right investment. That's what he's saying. Money itself is not the right investment. Now, I want to balance what Scripture says in Proverbs 21, that the wise man saves for his future. There's also a prudence and a wisdom uh, in setting aside things and thinking about how we're going to live in this life. We don't want to just be fools with the money that God has given us. 
But the point here is that money is not the place to seek joy in. Because a rich man can work and he can give it all to his son, but the son never learned how to work. And he ends up giving all the money away or spending all the money on foolish things. The father of a son has nothing in his hand for him. So there's, yes, there can be generational wealth, but it's not where joy is found. Warning six, verses 15 and 16. Wealth doesn't come with you. We've talked about this already. It doesn't go to the grave with you. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. So just as he came, which was naked, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Wealth doesn't go with us. He's explaining that idea of dust to dust a little bit more explicitly by saying naked to naked. Like this is the curse. We come in naked as a baby and then our bodies are cleaned when we're naked, right? Uh, This is the reality of our life. And so the gifts that God gives us, we don't get to take with us to the grave, Uh, There's a stopping point to them. So we can have these shadows of God's gifts, but ultimately they go nowhere with us. The warning in seven, or the seventh warning, is in 17. Wealth reveals misery. Look how he describes the wealthy man. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Is Solomon describing himself? He, he very well could. He, he knows something about it. He has such deep insights that he probably is describing himself. But he's alone because he doesn't trust anyone, because he knows everybody's after his money. He's angry because his ventures haven't satisfied him. He, the preacher has already said man is to enjoy the things that God gives in Ecclesiastes 2.24, and we're about to get to that point here again. But if wealth is the goal, you will not enjoy it. And you will not enjoy, or enjoy anyone around it because it leads to misery. Perhaps you know that cultural little slogan out there, get rich or die trying. That is foolish. That's completely foolish. Because the things that the rich try to get cannot and will not satisfy everything that your heart craves. It will not do it. So so the preacher warns us of these dangers in these first few verses, of pursuing wealth for wealth's sake. It doesn't bring about contentment. It doesn't bring about true friends. It cannot satisfy you. You cannot take it with you. It is not as good as it appears. I want to encourage you before we transition to the second point. What is your relationship with money? What is your relationship with money? What places does money grip your heart too tightly or your mind too frequently? Have you noticed in the history of your own life that when you get what you want, it only satisfies for a split moment until you think, about the things that you want even more and you forget how bad you wanted the things that you want. This is a vortex of insanity. 
it is a vortex of insanity, and that is what he is trying to bring out for us. Now, the second point from our text is verses 18 of chapter 5 all the way through 6, 9. But it's contentment and joy come from God. Contentment and joy come from God. So the preacher moves from the warnings of wealth to the proper enjoyment of the gifts of God. Now look with me in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So what is good, according to the preacher, is to find joy in eating and drinking and work, which we've, we've talked about. But look what verse 18 says. God only gives us a few days. You ever looked at your life as just a few days? Let's, let, it'd be good if we started to. And then he only gives us a few days, and then he gives us our lots. You see that there in verse 18? That means whatever land and responsibilities and gifts you've been given, they've been given to you by him. This means he has given to you what he thinks is best for you. He is given according to his own wisdom. And he has been kind in his giving. And he wants us to enjoy these things as it says there. There is enjoyment in all the toil. So enjoy the home that God has given you. Enjoy your apartment. Enjoy your broken bed. Lauren and I have a broken bed. I'm so grateful for my bed. I'm so grateful for milk chocolate. I I am. It's perfect. I'm so grateful for the friends that God has given me, for this church. This is our lot. And if I start looking over there and wondering what I don't have, rather than enjoying what God has given, I will miss God in all of it. I will miss the blessing of being his child Sometimes we are so preoccupied in our covetousness that we fail to consider God's good provisions. Think about that. We so want what others have that we don't even consider what God has given. Why do we think that God would give us more if we're not even thankful for what we have? Second Peter chapter three, his divine power has given us everything in life and godliness everything in life and godliness. So contentment ought to be the aim from verse 18 for everyone, but notice the words here in 19. This is, if you're asleep, you're about to become awake, okay? Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. So he tells us in 18 that man should enjoy the few days that he has and the few things that God has given, but look what he says here. It's God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who gives possessions. And look there, and God is the one who gives the power to enjoy them. 
It is God who gives us the power to enjoy them. And that's a gift also. So better said, those of us who are are trying to enjoy the gifts and God's provision and we're we're trying our best in our flesh to do that, it ain't gonna happen. That's a gift from the Lord. And so I guess the question would be, uh, do you enjoy the things that you have? Are you thankful in your heart for what God has provided you in this world? And if you are, praise God because that's a gift from him to you to teach you to enjoy his provisions for you. He's sovereign over this. And look at the effects of his kindness. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So this is what he's saying. When we sit here and we're studying the text, Uh, we can't help but to see that there's a promise attached to this. Uh, Those who are thankful to God and his provision, look what God gives him. He keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart, with joy in his heart. God allows us to be thankful all the days of our life if we have a right, ordered, fearful worship of him. And we won't even remember the days of our life. Uh, all the suffering, all of the injustice, all of the hardships, we are carried through those because God has filled our hearts with joy. And that is such a gift from God. A gift. The preacher is counseling us to find a contentment and satisfaction in God, who is the giver of all things. Uh, Kidner, a commentator, says this. At first sight, we look at this passage and it looks like mere praise for simplicity and moderation. But in fact, the key word here is God. And the secret of life held out to us is openness to him and a readiness to take what comes to us as sent from heaven, whether toil or wealth or both. All of it is from God. Are we satisfied Or are we wanting more? Do you look at the things that you have as sent from heaven? Allotted to you for your good. If he's working all things together for good, do you see them as your good? We're we're pretty crummy judges. We often think we want more. But God is the perfect and righteous judge who gives us exactly what it is that we need. When we are content in him, satisfied in him, we are satisfied in the things that he gives us. Now, look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. God not only gives the ability for some to enjoy these things rightly, but he also gives others the ability not to enjoy them. He doesn't give them the power to enjoy. Verse 6, or excuse me, Verse 1, chapter 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing for all that he desires. Check this out. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. This is man, and he has these gifts from God, but he is not able to enjoy them. And so you might be asking, how do we handle God's sovereign choice here? What do we do here? If he gives the the ability for some to enjoy what he gives, and he doesn't give the ability 
for others to enjoy those gifts. What do we do with that? Well, first and foremost, we have to recognize that God is sovereign and he is God and that we are not and that his judgments are perfect and right and good. God is so far away from who we are in our character and the way that we operate that we dare not use human standards to apply to God. Now, we do see that God works all things together, and it could be that some people who have wealth and are miserable in this life, that God uses that as a way to show them that they need God, and they might not see that yet. And so we trust that God can work and move in the driest heart. Do you remember Matthew 19? What Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What a picture. What a picture of, it, of a camel trying to get into the eye of a needle. And then his disciples heard this and they were like, well, who can be saved? And do you remember Christ's glorious words? What is impossible with man is possible with God. Stuff just doesn't satisfy. But we remember what it says in Luke 6. Blessed is the man, rich man, poor man, who hungers for righteousness, for he, for God will satisfy them. For God alone will satisfy those who hunger for these things. Now the preacher finishes up this kind of case study in verses 3 through 9. I'm going to go relatively quick in this. If a, fa- if a man's father, uh, excuse me, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun and known it, or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the, to the one place. So the stillborn, essentially, this is the summary, the stillborn will be grieved over the one who has a long life. Because the one with the long life and many riches is missed for what he has rather than himself. But the stillborn is missed for the life that he or she was not able to live. Uh, which is a really sad thought. And the stillborn is better off as they know nothing and yet find rest because they never had to toil. He continues in verse seven, all the toil of man is is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Simply means this, we constantly want more. Our appetites are wandering. And whether we're wise, whether we're fools, whether we're poor, we're constantly wanting more. And that is the reality, unless there's contentment in God. I love what Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. 
So, so all this wealth, all this pursuit of more, all this misery that accompanies is to drive us to God and our need for him. And then the gifts that God gives us, though they're to be rightly enjoyed and we're going to be received with thanksgiving, they themselves will not last either. But God gives us the the gifts and he gives us the ability to enjoy the gifts. But in the end, we have to, if we boil it all down, we have to recognize that it is God who is the gift. It is God who is the gift to us. He, he is gracious and merciful. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who provides perspective. He is the one who forgives us of sins. He is the one who raises us to walk in new life. He is the all-consuming fire, like the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12. He has lavished with fury his love upon us. This is the great gift. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, listen to this, but God is the strength of my heart. And God is my portion forever. This this is written by a man that recognizes that there's no better thing in this life than God himself. My question for you today is this. Do you believe that God can satisfy your heart? Do you believe that God can satisfy you? I think the quick answer is like, yes, I believe God can satisfy me, but we don't often sit in the question, is God satisfactory in himself to satisfy our hearts? He says that he is. Psalm 107, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. God fills the heart with good things, things about him, things that are everlasting, This is what God does. Jeremiah 31, for I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. God alone brings satisfaction. God alone bulldozes kind of our our fleshly desires for the things of this world and he, he allows the spirit to begin to open up our understanding to see that all we have in this life is Christ alone. That's it. It's all going away, except for him. And so we look for these things, right? We we look for these things to satisfy, and they don't satisfy. But you do have a, a hole in your heart. You do have these cravings in your hearts to be loved and to be satisfied and to be cared for. We just look for them in the wrong places. God is the one who satisfies, who loves, who cares for us. I love Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Spirit testifies to these things. I think if we're honest, we're kind of tempted and we're kind of getting close to closing. Bear with me. We're, We're tempted in two areas. We're tempted to skip God. Uh, we're, we're tempted to walk by sight and not by faith to determine what we think is best in this life and then we go for it and we save up for it and we, and we, and we keep that as our drive and I think that's just absolute vanity we can't look for satisfaction in what we see we have to look for satisfaction in the one we can't see the, the second temptation is this we use God to get what we want 
Have you ever said to yourself, if I pray more, God will give me this? If I go to church, if I start going to church again, maybe my circumstances will change. That's not the way that God works. God himself wants to be the satisfactory part of your heart so that you learn to enjoy all that he gives. So if we're going to enjoy the things that God gives us rightly, it requires an understanding that we will not find satisfaction in the gifts in and of themselves, uh, and nor will they ever truly be able to comfort us. If we are honest, uh, only Christ is the one who is, is able to comfort us, and he is the one who will always be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the final Amen. And, and, and it's Christ who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I, I will comfort your heart by sending you the Holy Spirit, who he calls the comforter. We cannot find comfort in these other things. Uh, and notice the greatest gift. Notice the greatest gift that God gives. Because all of this is to ultimately drive us to Christ. Verse 22. But now... Uh, excuse me, of, of, of Romans. We're not there. You're not there. I'm there. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you get that? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift isn't just eternal life. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus. Christ is the gift. He's the treasure of heaven come down from earth under the sun to save us. He is the one who satisfies our heart and, and only God gives the lamb. He introduces this in Genesis 22. Only God provides the lamb for Abraham. Only God provides the lamb for us. He's the one that satisfies. So God is really the center of our life. And when we love God, we can enjoy the things that God gives rightly and we're called to, we're supposed to. Let's enjoy those things. But it's through his covenant blood in Christ. That's where our livelihood is found. That's where our hope today and everlasting is found. Just a few takeaways in our last few minutes. As a pastor, I just want you to know my greatest prayer for you, my greatest burden for you is that you would set your heart on Christ and not the things of this world. As a Christian, I pray the same for myself. <laughs> that we would treasure him. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Drink the refreshing cup of Christ daily. And when we interact with Christ, you cannot help but to see the overflowing love that comes from our hearts and that satisfies us every day. Bob Vinka, theologian, says this, God and God alone is man's highest good. 
God is the abundant fountain of all goods, he says. And he's right. So just a few takeaways. Search your heart and repent. Where does the love of money and possessions have a grip on you? Repent from these things and pursue Christ. Acts 3 tells us we can turn to God. Um, First John, you confess your sins before God, you're, you're, you're forgiven. I think sometimes we think that, well, my love of money is not that big of a deal. And William Gurnall, who's one of the dead guys, like I said, I trust those dead guys. But he says, oh, just a little one, referring to sin, spirit. He says, spirit. That's the temptation that Satan gives to us. There's no small sin. If there's just a, a hint of a love of the things of this world over the, the love of God, turn to Christ today. Turn to Christ. Number two, ask God for joy in these things. What father among you, this is what Jesus says in Luke 11, what father among you, if he asks his son a fish, will instead of a fish give a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, speaking to us as, as men and women who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When's the last time you asked for the Holy Spirit of God to reveal your sin to you? to remind you of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, to replenish your heart of thanksgiving for all the things that you have that God has given to you. For, 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 for a right perspective to see what God has given you. Only God can provide this. I think sometimes we, we try harder and guys, the flesh ain't gonna get it done, but God can do this. God provides these things. Number three, just two more. Trust in the goodness of God. Trust in the goodness of God. You can find your contentment in him. Trust what he gives you and know that he thinks it's best. And beloved, remember, what he determined best for you is giving his only begotten son he, what, my, what that world needs is my son. Trust his goodness. If, we, if you haven't yet recognized his goodness by giving, it, by giving uh, the creation his only begotten son, to, and those who look upon him will be forgiven of their sins, everlasting life will be given to them. Trust in the goodness of God. Be content in God through Christ. And I'll tell you, when we find our contentment in Christ, you know what's destroyed? Covetousness. All the things that we think we need, but we don't. It's gone. And then lastly, think eternally. Think eternally. Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't don't seek the things of the earth. Seek the things that you've never seen. Seek the things that are above and his righteousness and all these things that we do need in this life. He knows we need these things will be added to us, both in the spiritual sense and also in meeting our daily needs, like it says in Luke. I provide for the birds. How much more do I provide for you? 
We don't want to lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. We want to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where our king is. Beloved, he is so good. The son was provided. He died for us. He bore the cross for us. He bore the curse for us. He forgave us. And if you don't know that, I hope you learn that. I hope, you, I hope the spirit of God is working in your heart to go, what, what, just curious, what are they talking about? How can I be freed from these things? All of this comes to those who walk by faith and not by sight. Who trust not in this world and the things of this world and the promises of this world or the institutions of this world, but who trust in the promise of God who gave us Christ. And one day, those of us who believe in him will have the greatest food, the greatest drink with the only Christ that there is forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, keep us from the snare of the devil who tempts us to love these things, Father, more than you. And that is idolatry. God, we, want to love, we, don't, we don't want to love anything but you so that we can rightly love the things that you give us and enjoy the things that you give us, God. Thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You might need to respond today by coming to talk to a pastor, and there's gonna be some pastors down here. And if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. You might be like, what is he talking about? And that is okay. There's no threat there. We've all been there. You, guess what? You're in a room full of non, like former non-Christians. And so we get it. But we'd love to talk with you. For the Christian, consider this song. Consider what we're about to sing, that Christ is our treasure. Consider it and sing it from the depths of your heart and believe it. Let's stand and let's exalt our great God and King.